Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. The rest of the events of Josiah's reign, along with his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. During his reign, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, marched up to help king of helped the king of Assyria at the Euphrates River. King Josiah went to confront him, and at Megiddo, when Necho saw him, he killed him. From Megiddo, his servants carried his dead body in a chariot, brought him into Jerusalem, and buried him in his own tomb. Then the common people took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, anointed him, and made him king in place of his father. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Terry. You might be thinking that's a really weird place to uh, talk about lament. Like, what in the world is going on here? Uh, we don't really go to Kings much. One day I'm going to preach through Kings or Chronicles, uh, and you're going to learn that it's not as boring as you think it is. Um, <laughs> but today we're talking lament. <clears throat> and what is lament? Why it is important for God's people to lament? Um, You might have thought of lament as whining. Maybe you've never thought of the word itself at all. Um, To lament is just a cry out to God. It's literally to complain to God. And you might ask, like, what's the difference between complaining and whining? And, you know, I I tried this week to find out what the difference is. And the problem is if you ask 100 experts what the difference is between complaining and whining, they'll all have different answers. So here's the definition I've landed on. Whining is complaining for attention. It's not like trying to do anything constructive with your complaint. It's just complaining so that people will see you. At least that's how it is when my kids whine um, or I see people whine. It's almost always just to get attention, just to be heard, but there's nothing constructive happening with whining. It's just complaining for no purpose. But then there's actual complaint. There are good reasons to complain in life. There are good reasons to go to friends or family members or trusted people or people in your life and say, hey, this terrible thing is happening to me now or this terrible thing has happened to me and I feel horrible about it. And maybe not even expect anything other than sympathy or care or love. There is a place for complaining. Not all complaining is whining. And with our God, our Father in heaven, we are invited to come and complain to him. If you've ever felt bad about complaining to God or you've ever failed to complain to God because you felt like it was inappropriate or not right, then I want to give you permission today from the scriptures that it is right and good for you to take all of your complaints to God and not even to expect an immediate answer or fix, but just to complain to God. And we get that in Psalm 44. And I can't wait to jump into the psalm, but first we have to understand what's going on here. Why in the world did we go to 2 Kings? See, back in 609 BC, the pharaoh of Egypt had a problem. The Babylonian empire was rising up and the Babylonians had alliances with the Medes and the Persians. And they were traveling their way across, coming west from the east, from Persia, and they were taking over everything. And the Egyptians didn't like this. They were afraid that eventually the Babylonians would make their way to Egypt. Now, along the way, the Babylonians came into contact with the Assyrians. Now, I've talked about the Assyrians before. 
The Assyrians were like the big bad empire back in the day. They were, when they came on the scene, the Assyrians were the most brutal empire that had ever existed. They ran over everybody and just took over everything. They had a few like military advancements that gave them an edge in war and they used them to their fullest advantage and they just ran over everybody. But then come the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and they start to beat Assyria on Assyria's own fronts. They start to beat Assyria on their own land. And they push Assyria back, and they push Assyria back, and they push Assyria back. And it turns out that the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians are better at war than Assyria is, and they're less brutal. So when they come along and they conquer people, they don't force people to acculturate to them. They don't force people to give up their cultures and their religions. They're not as harsh. Now, they're still an empire, right? They're still, they're still oppressors. But they're nowhere near as brutal as the Assyrians to the people they've actually conquered. Though in battle, they're just as fierce. So it's actually a good thing to be beaten, to have the Assyrians beaten by the Babylonians if you're a people who are under the rule of Assyria. It means you can reclaim some of your culture and some of your life that you had before. And so Babylon comes along and they start to beat back Assyria until Assyria is finally just a shell of itself. It's just a ghost of itself. And at about 609, the Pharaoh Necho, Pharaoh Necho II of Egypt, you can read about this not only in the Bible, you can read about this in Josephus, you can read about this in a couple of other historical documents from the time. Pharaoh Necho, in the late 600s BC, decides, I need to go and, and face the Babylonians. I, I, they can't come this way. If they get through Israel, if they get through Judah, then the next stop is Egypt. And I can't have that. And so Pharaoh Necho puts together this army and he's going to go confront the Babylonians. Only he's got to march through Judah to get there. Because you can't go west from Judah. If you go west from Judah, it's all desert. You can't get an army across that desert without them dying. And so the Babylonians have been coming along and they're coming down and they're up in Syria now and they're going to make their way down through Judah. And so Egypt goes up to meet them. Only on the way they have to pass through Judah. Now, if you're, if you're the pharaoh of Egypt, you don't think passing through Judah is a big deal at all. Because Judah is about this big. It is eensy-weensy. And you know that these Jews, these people from Judah, they don't have the military force to stop you going through their land. And so Pharaoh Necho takes his soldiers up through Judah. Only Josiah, the king of Judah, doesn't like this. I'm going to stop the Egyptians. And so Josiah goes to stop the Egyptians. And there's one point in the book of Chronicles where Pharaoh Necho says to Josiah, he sends a messenger to say to Josiah, hey man, we don't have any problem with you. We just want to go fight the Babylonians. We're not trying to hurt you or take over for you. But Josiah's like, no, 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 you're not going to go through my land. You're not just going to march through Judah. Now Josiah has been king since he was eight years old. Josiah becomes king of Judah at a very young age. And Josiah, in his youth, and you might even say naivete, actually believes in the God of the Scriptures. Josiah is actually faithful to Yahweh. As unlike so many kings who had come before him, who had torn down Israel's holy places to build up shrines to idols, who had led the nation in worship of idols, Josiah comes up 
and even at eight years old begins to enact reforms in the country to tear down those idolatrous places and to tear down those shrines and reestablish worship of the one true God of Yahweh. Only things have been so bad in the nation that they don't even have the scriptures anymore. They don't have the book of the law. And so Josiah is having the temple repaired and rebuilt. And while Josiah is having the temple repaired and rebuilt, some of the builders come to him and are like, King, um, yo, we found this book like in the rubble. As we were cleaning out the treasure house and the storehouses, we found this book and we think you should read it. And so one of the priests goes to Josiah and reads the book of the law for Josiah. And Josiah is so brokenhearted over the state of their nation that he tears his clothes and he mourns and weeps because he realizes they have not been faithful. Even he has not been faithful. He has done what he knew to do. Josiah is righteous and good, not because he kept all the law. Josiah is righteous and good because he did what he could with what he had, and God accepted that. But the moment that he got more revelation, the moment that he understood more about God, he became responsible for that more that he had. And so Josiah is like, oh my gosh, even trying to do right, we haven't been following the law. We haven't been faithful to God. And so he enacts even more reforms. And the nation follows him. One of the principles you have to understand about the Old Testament is as the king goes, so goes the nation. As the king is, so is the nation. The nation is largely judged on the righteousness of its leaders, its kings and its priests and its prophets. And so Josiah is brokenhearted and says, no, 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 we need to be even more faithful. And they go through this period of two decades of faithfulness to Yahweh of trying to be better, trying to follow God, trying to be righteous before God. And they're doing the right stuff. And then Egypt marches through Judah. And the people pray as they always do before a battle. They go to the Lord God and they pray for blessing. Because in this time and place, when your nations go to war, it's not one nation against another, it's one God against another. That's how, you, that's how these people think of this, right? When, when, when my nation goes to war, it's not just that the people are battling one another. It's that our gods are battling for superiority. And if you lose, it's a mark against not your nation and its power, but against the power of its deities, against the power of its gods. And so Pharaoh Necho begins to march up through Judah. Josiah goes out to meet him. And having prayed and having sought God's favor and having sought God's power, Judah loses. After decades of faithfulness, after turning everything around, after repentance, after really trying to be faithful and righteous before God, they lose. And this is devastating. After this point, Judah will never again be truly free. After this point, they're under the thumb of Egypt and then under the thumb of the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians and then under the thumb of the Persian Empire and then ultimately under the thumb of Rome. And aside from a very short period of time, they're never again independent after this battle. We read about 
the son of Josiah coming up and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and his son did evil in the sight of the Lord and his son did evil in the sight of the Lord and on and on and on. The kings no longer are faithful to Yahweh. And so you look at this period of time in Josiah's life, these reforms that he brought to the nation, and you think, now's the turning point. All right, God, now you're going to rescue your people. All right, now you're going to save them from the oppressors. You're going to save them from Egypt and from Babylon. You're going to make them a, a beacon on a hill again. Only Josiah dies, and that's the marker now of hundreds of years of oppression under other empires. And you have to imagine the people of God, when Josiah dies and they lose that battle, the people of God are like, what on earth? God, why? Of all the things, we would understand if we had been unfaithful to you, but we turned it around. We were following you. We had a faithful king. Why would you deliver us over to Egypt? Why, God? Only we don't have to speculate about this because we have it written down right in the Scriptures. We're going to read Psalm 44, and we're going to walk through this psalm together as, as the response of the people to their God in a time of defeat. Now, we don't know when this psalm was written. We know that it's a song. It was written for the choir director. It is a maskil of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are probably a choral group who are writing songs for the people to sing. A maskil would be one type of song that they would sing. And so these sons of Korah have written this psalm specifically for periods in the people of God's history and time when they're feeling abandoned by God, when they're feeling left out by God. And the scholars will go back and forth. They don't know exactly when it was written, but it was probably written after some defeat that didn't make sense to them. There was a defeat during the reign of the king Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a righteous king. And the nation suffered a massive defeat under Hezekiah. And so some scholars will say it's probably written in response to that. Others will look at this time in the life of Josiah and say it's probably written in response to that. But in either case, this psalm is one that the nation would come together and sing when they were defeated or they suffered and it didn't make sense to them. And there's no better picture of what lament is than when we suffer for apparently no reason, or we suffer and we've done everything right. We've tried to do it all right, and yet suffering still comes our way. This is our permission to rail against our God when our suffering makes no sense. And if I read this psalm and you go, wait a minute, that's in the Bible, then you've responded properly. <laughs> if I read the psalm and you go, wait, 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 what? Then, then that's how you're supposed to feel. That's the idea. And so I'm going to read this in the message because the way that Eugene Peterson translates it for the message captures the feeling of this psalm so much better than many of our translations. And so I'm going to read the whole thing and then we're going to walk through it from the perspective of a people who have just suffered a massive defeat. Okay, so listen, just listen first. Close your eyes if you want to. Just imagine that you're in the seat of the psalmist right now. We've been hearing about this God all our lives. Our fathers told us the stories their fathers told them. 
how single-handedly you weeded out the godless from the fields and planted us. How you sent those people packing but gave us a fresh start. We didn't fight for this land. We didn't work for it. It was a gift. You gave it smiling as you gave it, delighting as you gave it. You're my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. With your help, we'll wipe out our enemies. In your name, we'll stomp them to dust. I don't trust in weapons. My sword doesn't save me, but it's you, you who saved us from the enemy. You made those who hate us lose face. All day, we parade God's praise. We thank you by name over and over. But now you've walked off and left us. You've disgraced us and won't fight for us. You made us turn tail and run. Those who hate us have cleaned us out. You delivered us as sheep to the butcher. You scattered us to the four winds. You sold your people at a discount. You made nothing on the sale. You made people on the street, people we know, poke fun and call us names. You made us a joke among the godless, a cheap joke among the rabble. Every day I'm up against it, my nose rubbed in my shame. Gossip and ridicule fill the air. People out to get me crowd the street. All this came down on us, and we've done nothing to deserve it. We never betrayed your covenant. Our hearts were never false. Our feet never left your path. Do we deserve torture in a den of jackals or lock up in a black hole? If we had forgotten to pray to our God or made fools of ourselves with store-bought gods, wouldn't God have figured this out? We can't hide things from him. No, you decided to make us martyrs, lambs assigned for sacrifice each day. Get up, God. Are you going to sleep all day? Wake up. Don't you care what happens to us? Why do you bury your face in the pillow? Why pretend things are just fine with us? And here we are, flat on our faces in the dirt, held down with a boot on our necks. Get up and come to our rescue. If you love us so much, help us. And there ends the song. Were you expecting a turnaround? Were you expecting the psalmist to go, but I trust in God. But God, you are our salvation. There's none of that. It just ends. So let's look at these first eight verses. Because this psalm moves through four movements. And so we're going to think as though we're a soldier preparing for battle. Or you might think of uh, a loved one is going in for surgery. Or you've got some big test coming up. Or maybe you've got a trial coming up and you're hoping it turns out a certain way. And so you're praying in preparation. So these first eight verses, these are the preparation prayer. These are the prayers people would pray before going into battle, before facing something. And so we've been hearing about this God all our lives. Our fathers told us the stories. Their fathers told them how single-handedly you weeded out the godless from the fields and planted us. How you sent those people packing but gave us a fresh start. We didn't fight for this land. We didn't work for it. It was a gift. You gave it smiling as you gave it, delighting as you gave it. You're my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. You can hear the preparation in that, right? You're appealing to God based on history, saying you're the God who saved us. You're the God who called us out of Egypt. You're the God who gave us this land. Remember who we are to you and remember who you've been to us. 
And so, Lord, give us victory. We trust in you. We have faith in you. It wasn't our arms that won us this land. It wasn't our strength or our numbers or our abilities. You, Lord, gave us this gift. Now protect it, Father. This is the prayer of preparation. This is how we pray in preparation for anything that's coming in our lives. God, you were the one who called me. God, you were the one who gave me breath. God, you are the one who gave me life. I didn't earn anything that I have. It is a gift from your hand. Whatever I have, Lord, I have because you gave it. If I have attained things by my intelligence, it's you who made me smart. If I have attained things by my physical strength, it is you who built me up. If I have attained things by whatever means, Lord, it is because you have made me as you have made me. Not by my own effort. And so in preparation for whatever comes, we pray to our God and we remind God, you were faithful. You've been faithful to me. You've given me so much, God. And so would you, would you give me victory in this thing? Would you lead me? Would you give us victory in this thing? Would you, would you protect your investment, God? I mean, that's what the prayer is. You've given all of this stuff. Would you protect what you have given? Protect your gift? Protect your servant and your child? This is the prayer of preparation. And then in verse 9, we feel that immediate switch. You can imagine that this is now after the battle, after the thing has come, after the surgery didn't work out, after you lost the trial, after you didn't get the job, after whatever disappointment comes, now comes the response, the defeat. But now you've walked off and left us. You've disgraced us and won't fight for us. This is the immediate response of defeat. This is the response of the heart to the great disappointment. I sought your face, God. We called upon you. We asked you to protect what you had given. We acknowledged that we were not the ones in control. I acknowledged, God, that None of this came by efforts of my own hands. I was humble in seeking your face, God. But you've betrayed me. How could I lose this thing? How, God, could you have failed us so? Why, God? This is that prayer. The response to a defeat. The response to a loss. The why God question that haunts us all in times of disappointment and brokenness. Why God? And today, you need to know that it is entirely right and appropriate for you to say, why God? Why? We called on you. We asked for you. You say you love us. You've left us in our defeat. Why, God? So we cry out the why. And then we come to the protest. So here's the point where the psalmist and where we come back to God. And, and we have to recognize that there are many times in our lives where we suffer a defeat. And we haven't been righteous. And we haven't called on God. And it's not God that let us down. It's us who let us down. Like, let, let's just be real. 
There are defeats we suffer in our lives that are our fault. And in those times, we are still tempted to look to God and say, why God? And God is perfectly right and and just in saying, wait a minute, you never came to me. You never talked to me about this. You never sought counsel. You did this unwise thing, and here are the consequences. That is right and good and just. But here, we come to the protest of a righteous people. Here we come to the protest of a people who really legitimately feel like they did not deserve what came their way. And this is where you got to remember those reforms of Josiah, right? Remember, these were a people who were trying to follow God, trying to be righteous, trying to apply the law, trying to be faithful to their God. And so we respond to God in protest now. We've had the, the prayer of preparation. We've had the defeat response prayer, the why God prayer. And now we're at the prayer of protest where we're saying, wait a minute, God, like I didn't do anything to deserve it this time. This was not due to my stupidity. This was not due to me walking away from you. This was not due to unrighteousness. This wasn't due to any fault on my part. And I know there will be people in here who are like, yeah, but we're all sinners. Yeah, but we all make mistakes. Yeah, but but we, we can't read the psalm this way. We have to read the psalm as though the people are speaking truth about themselves. The only way to get to the real gut-wrenching heart-hitting part of this psalm is to assume that what the people are saying here is right and true, just as they would have after the defeat of Josiah. Because they were trying for righteousness. They were living according to the law. They were seeking God's faith and being faithful to him. And yes, they made mistakes and they sinned along the way. But God's more concerned about the posture of our hearts than he is the perfection of our actions. And in this case, the posture of the people's hearts was toward God. And so we protest. All this came down on us, God, and we've done nothing to deserve it. We never betrayed your covenant. Our hearts were never false. Our feet never left your path. Do we deserve torture in a den of jackals or lock up in a black hole? If we had forgotten to pray to our God or made fools of ourselves with store-bought gods, wouldn't God have figured that out? We can't hide things from him. No, you decided to make us martyrs. Lambs assigned for sacrifice each day. This is is a brilliant bit of this psalm. Because what what the person praying here is doing is asking God to judge God's self. What the person doing here is looking up to God who is just and good and right and saying, how would you judge it if you were in my shoes? How would you judge yourself? If you experienced what I've experienced, God. If you saw your abandonment of your people and you were in my shoes, how would you feel, God? That's what the psalmist is praying here. Looking to God and saying, I don't understand. And I think if you were in my shoes, if you were in my boat, you'd feel exactly the same way. It's essentially judging God as a betrayer. It's laying all of their feelings out there and saying, God, would you look at your own actions? Would you consider for a moment how you've treated us? This this defeat wasn't on us. We followed you. We were faithful. We were trying to follow you. We went out and did what we thought was right. And you didn't follow through. 
How would you judge those actions, God? This is a brokenhearted, hurt person. This is a deep, deep wounding that's just asking for sympathy from their God. And so we protest. This is not right, God. Your abandonment is not right. Would you judge it yourself? And then we come to the last section here. And this is the most beautiful point. We come to the petition. If the psalm ended at verse 19 with that protest to God, I think it would be unrighteous. I think if the psalm ended at verse 19, just accusing God and never went any further, we, it wouldn't be preserved for us. It wouldn't be a good thing for us to sing. But these last verses are the most important. And it's funny because to our ears, they sound the most accusatory. To our ears, they sound the most harsh toward God. But listen to these words. Get up, God. Are you going to sleep all day? Wake up. Don't you care what happens to us? Why do you bury your face in the pillow? Why pretend things are just fine with us? And here we are, flat on our faces, in the dirt, held down with a boot on our necks. Get up and come to our rescue. If you love us so much, help us. Now this ending could have gone one of two ways. It could have gone, God, you're unjust, you're wrong, you betrayed us, and now we will betray you. We're done. I'm walking away. And you would read that and you would go, yeah, I see where that comes from. Maybe it's not right, but I totally understand that posture. But it doesn't do that. The psalm turns back. And the psalm now is not just a protest against God. It's not an accusation of God. It is a plea to God. It's not an abandonment. As accusatory as this sounds, it is a begging of God to rise up to their rescue. This is the heart that is turned toward God. This is what a heart of faithfulness does in moments of extreme disappointment and of feeling betrayed. It doesn't walk away from God. It doesn't walk away from his goodness. It doesn't walk away from God. It comes to God and says, I don't understand all of this. This is where my heart is. I feel betrayed. I feel like you should judge yourself. But would you please come and help me? Please come to my rescue. I need you. This is the heart that longs for God to be good and right and just. This is the heart that goes, I feel betrayed, but I'm still coming to you. Where else would I go? There's one point where Jesus is walking with his disciples and he's being abandoned left and right. He said some really hard stuff. And the authorities are after him. And his followers get wind of that and they know it and they get afraid. And a lot of them get spooked and run away. And Jesus looks to the 12 and says, what about you? Are you going to leave me too? And one of them looks to him and says, teacher, you have the words of life. Where else would we go? That's the heart of a faithful follower. No matter what comes, no matter how unjust it feels, no matter how betrayed I feel. And believe it or not, some of the disciples felt betrayed by Jesus. On the regular, he wasn't doing what they expected. He wasn't being the Messiah that they wanted. 
But at the end of the day, they had to turn to him and say, but you have the words of life. Where else will I go? And in this psalm, the psalmist, the people singing are going, but you're still our God. I think about the book of Job. And if you haven't read the book of Job, I hope you do. At the beginning of the book of Job, the accuser, the Satan, this, this is like one of God's court, goes to God and says, Hey, uh, God, have you ever considered this guy Job? Like, you've given him a lot of good stuff, and I think he only really loves you because of all the stuff you've given him. I bet if you took all that away, he would curse your name. And God is like, okay, give it a try. And so the Satan comes and he takes everything away from Job. Everything away. And we see Job stripped of everything. And we see Job cry out to God. And in a vein very similar to this psalm, Job looks to God and is like, this is unjust. Why is this happening? Why don't you come and talk to me? Why don't you come and answer me? I only hear silence from the heavens and I need you to speak to me. And at that moment, you could look at Job and you could be like, oh, well, Job failed the test. Only he never did. Because remember the, remember the accusation of the Satan from the beginning. The accusation wasn't that Job would long for the things back. The accusation was that if you take the things away, Job will curse your name. But the more that Job loses, the more that we see him turn to God and seek answers. The more that Job loses, the more that we see him turn to face his God. And yes, he faces God in anger and frustration and disappointment and brokenness. But the point is that his face turns to his God. And he doesn't turn away. Job never fails the test. He doesn't ask for the things back. He only asks for an explanation. He doesn't ask for the stuff or for the trinkets or for gifts from God's hands. He just wants God. He just wants an explanation. He just wants the Lord to speak to him. In all of his loss, Job longs for his God to speak and to be present with him. And this psalmist does exactly the same. In all of the loss, in all the anger, in all the disappointment, in all the brokenness, the psalmist just wants God to show up. And that should be the greatest comfort to you and me. Because we have a God who sympathizes with us in all of our weakness, according to Hebrews. That Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh, walked among us, and experienced every single one of our weaknesses and disappointments and frustrations and hurt. We have a God who's walked in our shoes so that when we look to our God and we say something along the lines of this psalm and say, God, you just don't understand what this betrayal feels like, he can point to a cross and say, no, I know exactly what your betrayal feels like. I know what it is to have the world turn its back on me. I know what it is to be crucified by a mob. I know what it is to come to my own people and have them not recognize me. I know what it is to be rejected by those who most said they loved me. I know what it is to be killed by the people who said they were doing it in my Father's name. Jesus comes to us. And when we turn to our God in anger and betrayal and frustration, seeking nothing more than an answer from our Father. He points us to Jesus. He doesn't necessarily always give us an answer for our suffering. There's not always a right and good answer for what's going on in our lives. 
The Bible's answer to our suffering is not to give us all of the answers and lay out the plan before us and show us the glory in it. The Bible's answer to our suffering is to give us permission to call out to our God with absolutely whatever we are feeling and lay it all on him, the only one whose shoulders can handle it all. The only one who can bear our pain. The only one who can bear the weight of our brokenness. The only one who can carry it all with us. And to point us to a cross and an empty tomb. And to tell us, child, right now I sympathize with you. Child, right now I feel where you are. Child, I understand what it is to be betrayed. I understand what it is to be broken. I understand all of the pain that you are walking through and I will walk with you through it all. I will hold your hand and wrap my arms around your shoulder and I will care for you and I will be there with you. And though there will come a day when all things will be made right and though there will come a day when Jesus will return and all things will be made new, I don't think that in our moments of suffering that's God's response to us. Because the silver lining is not always what we need to hear in the midst of our suffering and brokenness. There will come a day, there will come a time in our suffering, there will come a time in our healing where we'll be able to see beyond the darkness and the pain of what we're struggling with right now. There will come a day in our walk toward healing and in our, in our restoration that we will be able to see the ends and know and glorify our God in heaven and our King Jesus who will come to make all things right. There will be a day that our minds can comprehend that and it will bring joy to our hearts and it will be right and good. But in the very darkness of our suffering, in the depth of the pit that we are in, God simply comes alongside of us, puts his arm around us and says, I am with you, my child. I love you and I am with you. And he does that through the power of his Holy Spirit. He does that through the presence of his Spirit. And he does that through you and me. When we are feeling betrayed by God, when we are feeling broken by God, when we are feeling like God is not there and God has been unjust and that we have been trying to walk in his ways and follow Jesus and yet we are met with disappointment and brokenness and hurt, God's response is, I love you. And I've given you a people, I've given you a family to walk with you. To be my arms, to wrap you up in my love, to walk along with you. When we are hurting and we are suffering, that is the time to most lean into Jesus, to most lean into God the Father, and most lean into his church, into this family that he's given us to walk the road together. Which means that we have to be the kind of community where people can be vulnerable enough to share this thing. We have to be the kind of community where people feel like it's safe to come and say, I don't know that I know who God is right now. We have to be the kind of community where it's safe for people to come and say, I feel totally abandoned and betrayed by God. There are church bodies where you come and you say that and you will be ostracized and pushed out because of your lack of faith. 
But it is our call as followers of Jesus to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to wrap our arms around people in that situation and say, I will have faith for you right now. I know you don't have faith. I know you don't see the light. I know you don't know where God is, but I will be that for you right now. I will be Jesus to you in your brokenness and I will carry it with you. Church, we have to be a safe place for people to lament. And we have to know that when we lament to our God, he does not reject us. He does not push us away. He embraces us and calls us into deeper fellowship with him and with one another. And then when we come to one another in our lament, the call of Christ is to wrap our arms around each other and walk through the dark together, to lend out our faith, to lend out our hope, to lend out our love and not just hoard it to ourselves, although this is some individual path we walk, but to truly be the family of God being Jesus to each other on this path. And so I want you to know, if you're hurting, if you're struggling, if you're in the dark, if you don't know where your faith is, you don't know where your God is, if you're struggling right now and you feel abandoned and betrayed and you're asking why God and you're protesting, I have tried, Lord, and yet I keep meeting disappointment after disappointment. Here in this place, you will be met with love and care and embrace and never rejected. Because our God never rejects you. And our Jesus has walked the road before you to embrace you into his family. Let's pray. God, thank you for the permission that you have given us to be totally real with who we are and where we are in the moment. Thank you, God, that you are big enough to take our complaint. You are big enough to take our accusation. You are big enough and good enough to say to us in the darkness, I love you and I am with you and I am for you. Thank you, God, that you invite us to seek you out in the moments of our pain and to lay bare before you everything that we feel. Thank you for this permission. God, I pray that we would be a people who are vulnerable enough to share those times with one another. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the fortitude and the love and the care and the grace for one another to lend our faith and our hope and our love to each other when we don't feel like we have those resources. God, I pray that you would give us the strength and the vulnerability to walk arm in arm with one another through the darkness of our souls, through the darkness of our world when we are in a pit. And that, God, you would lead us to restoration and to hope. And God, I pray that through the process of our healing, through the process of our restoration, you would eventually give us eyes to see your purposes and your glory even in the darkest moments. And in all things, in all circumstances, to look to you, Jesus, and say, where else can I go? You have the words of life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.